We sing the Lord's Prayer as we turn to our text this morning or this afternoon because it is the part of the Gospel of Luke that immediately precedes this this passage that we have before us on your sheet there. We are, if you turn to the other side of your handout, in, in the Gospel of Luke and at the fifth verse of chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, introduce us to the Lord's Prayer, and then this follows on the heels of that. So give ear to God's Word to us this afternoon. Verse 5, And He, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, or the people that are gathered around Him as well, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you? If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Thus far, God's Word. The disciples have just finished asking Jesus to teach them to pray. And as we've sung, the Lord gave them a pattern for prayer in response. But our Lord is generous, and He doesn't stop with just a pattern and leave them to themselves. He adds something more. He knows our need, and so He gives us with the pattern of prayer a motive, an encouragement, a a stirring speech to use to make use of the prayer. Our sovereign God knows how to make us feel our need of prayer. And having made us feel our need, He knows how to turn our attentions, our desires toward Him and move us to Him in such a time of need. He is well able to lift up the light of His countenance upon us and to shine with such countenance toward us so that we don't just come because we have to, but become because we want to and are drawn into the presence of such a generous, magnanimous God as this. He makes the effort of prayer appealing. It is something like a, a chef setting a plate before you. We all need to eat. We know what it is to be hungry and so be driven to find something to satisfy that need. But the need is further directed, is it not, when the food is itself appealing to our eyes and to our other senses. A plate of gray, unadorned oatmeal is enough to nourish you. But it's something far different to have a well-set buffet with lots of colors and various things to put on your plate. The latter has the power not only to meet your need, but also to draw you in, to fill it and do so with a great expectation. 
And so I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He motivates us toward the work of prayer by setting two beautiful things before us. And the first and more lengthy part of that setting before us is the honor and truthfulness of the one we seek in prayer. His honor and His truthfulness. And then secondly, who we are as we seek this one. He sets before us in this sense a very appealing table to meet the need, the hunger that we have for prayer. And He reminds us not only of the beauty of the table, but what our dress looks like when we approach such a table. In short, He shows us God and ourselves. And so doing, He encourages you and I to prayer, to make use of that prayer that He first taught His disciples. And so look first at how He sets our attentions upon God Himself. He does it with a parable. And if you notice in verse 5, the parable opens as a question. It's a parable that, in a sense, is that. It's a question to His audience. He says, which of you has a friend? Or we might render it, can you imagine a friend? Can you think of such a situation as I am about to set before you? Can you, can you picture this in your mind? Recall he's speaking to first century Jews. This is somewhat important. This is not in Jerusalem. So this is not the bustling city of Jerusalem filled with pilgrims at the feast time. But instead, he's in one of the smaller villages outside of Jerusalem in the, the surrounding country of Israel. And so it is a small, tight-knit community into which he walks and to whom he speaks. Everyone knows everyone. And everybody knows everybody else's business. And so he speaks to a people about this situation in such a village where they all know everyone and everybody knows everybody's business. And he says to them, can you imagine something like this happening? A man coming in the middle of the night to your house. Or you being the man coming in the middle of the night to the house. Now, while that would be a very uh, rude interruption to most of us in Savannah, in an ancient Near Eastern village, that wouldn't be so, such a jarring thing. They would actually answer such a question with a resounding, yes, of course we can imagine it. Why? What other time would someone who travels in a hot desert travel other than at night to avoid the hot sun and the heat? They would travel at night and so arrive in the middle of the night. They'd receive guests at such times and they themselves had been guests at such times. So of course we can imagine a man coming at midnight to our house or us coming to a house at midnight. Well, can you imagine further that you might need to borrow bread for such a guest? And again, the answer would have been, well, of course. What else would we do when he came but feed him? That would be the expectation of all custom and hospitality would require us in our society, in this village, to put food before him. And such a guest would more, even more expect not just food, not just a snack, but enough that the spread laid before them would show that the host was very generous and was willing to provide more than he needed. There would be a need to appear generous in our hospitality. And such expectations, though strange to us, are not unknown, I, I think, in our world. If you've traveled to another country, you may have experienced this. Jamie and I at one point were invited to go to a refugee's house in a housing project in Roanoke, Virginia. We had never met them, but somebody told us to go and we went. 
without announcing ourselves and knocked on the door and this refugee from another country opened the door and saw us. He'd never seen us before. And he welcomed us into his house. And we sat on his couch. And then he and his wife had this kind of heated conversation in another language that neither Jamie or I understood. And afterwards, the wife disappeared and then came back and slung two sodas and some snacks in front of us. And clearly, you could tell that they had had a conversation where he was pressing on her the need for hospitality. Yes, we're in another country, honey, but you know what we must do because if we don't do it, we'll appear as those who are unhospitable. Go get them the drinks. To ignore our guests would be the height of shamelessness. You see, that's the kind of world that Jesus speaks into. A midnight guest in a village of that time would be expected to have food set before him even if that food must be borrowed from a neighbor. All of their friends and neighbors would have understood such a request as the most normal thing in the world to do. It's the mindset of the ancient Near Eastern villager. So they can easily imagine what we read in verses 5 and 6. Going to a friend at midnight and asking, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. All this is expected. It's the next part that would have been surprising. The neighbor answering from within and saying this, do do not bother me. The the door, it's locked and shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. You see, that, to their ears, would have been shocking. He doesn't get up. He makes strange excuses. He should willingly help his neighbor. He's already up. He's answering him. He doesn't have to wake up the children. They don't have anything to do with the bread. Why is he making such a shameless refusal of all decorum and custom. It would bring disgrace on both him and the man that was asking for bread, refusing to give what he asks. All the honor of both men's names would be soiled among the villagers in the morning. Because all would hear very quickly, because everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody else's business. This is, in fact, I think, the reason why he ends up giving him the bread Not because it says he's a friend, but, verse 8, because, it says, of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. His impudence. It's a strange word. We don't use it in everyday language. And often as we read this parable, we hear this as a call to perseverance. We set ourselves in the place of the friend who's come to the door to ask for bread, and I think we rightly do so. And we perceive in this description a call to impudence, a call to persistence. We say something like, you need to be like that guy and be impudent in your prayers. You need to be persistent and persevere. But impudence doesn't actually necessarily mean perseverance or persistence. It actually comes from a Latin word that literally means shameless. Shameless. And the Greek here means that as well. It means shamelessness, as I put in the handout there. That's what the NASB translates it. Because of his shamelessness, it says, he will rise and give. His shamelessness. It is a perfectly understandable motivation in such a situation as this. Both the friend that asks for the loaves and the one who refuses to give the loaves, but ends up giving... It, they do what they do in order to avoid this thing, shamelessness. They don't want to appear shamelessness among the villagers. 
They don't want to appear as those that care nothing about honor and shame in a culture that is filled with honor and shame. Neither wants to appear to the village in the morning as a shameless man. That would be horrible. And so the one asks for bread and the other eventually gives. He is motivated by the preservation of honor to give whatever he needs. Not friendship, honor. He will, preser- he will preserve both the honor of himself and his friend by providing all, it says, that is necessary. And I think that does, in fact, teach us something very important and encouraging about prayer. When you and I pray, when we come to God and have need of something that we don't possess in our own possession, when we have nothing and we ask Him to fulfill the need that we have, you will get what you ask. Why? Well, not because of anything in you. Not because of anything in you. Not because you are a friend. No, you will get what you need because God will do so for the honor of His name. He will not be one who is called shameless. He will act because He will not be a shameless one. He will not have you known as such either. And so He will give. This is, of course, the supreme motive for all that God does. Why does God do what He does? For His own glory. He will answer your call for His own glory. Listen to Isaiah 43.25. We run into this kind of thing all the time in Scripture. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions. Why? For My own name's sake. And then Isaiah 48.11. For My own sake, He repeats Himself, for My own sake, I do it. For how should My name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see, your prayer is not answered because you are persistent. Your prayer is not answered because you persevere. Your prayer is finally and ultimately answered because God will not despoil or soil or make shameless in the world His name. And He will not allow you to be called a shameless one either. It is for His own glory, for the honor of His name, which He sets upon you in your baptism, which you bear as a member of the body of Christ. It is for that, for that, His honor, that He answers in order that His promise would stand sure. All who believe in Him will never be put to shame. Romans 10.11 And I think, brothers and sisters, that ought to motivate us to pray. Not because it depends on you, Not because you have to be persistent. And that doesn't mean that you can't be persistent or shouldn't be. But what it does mean is that the thing that makes God answer you is His honor and glory. And God wants to receive honor and glory because there's nothing better to seek in the world but His honor and glory. Pray because He will hear you for that. It's the very thing Jesus says at the end of the parable. Verse 9, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Why? Because God will do it for His own glory, His own honor. Knock. And notice it doesn't say knock, 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 keep on knocking. It just says knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You can know that as sure as you know that God will uphold the honor of His name. That's what is first and foremost shown us here. But, 
for some of you, or maybe all of us at some time or another, such a desire or a motive to pray may seem like a distant and cold thing. It may seem that to pray to such a God is to pray to a God who cares nothing for me where I am. He's severe. He's high. He's holy. He's willing to do whatever. He can have His creatures suffer and go through all kinds of hardship because it's all about His glory and not about me. His cold, hard pursuit of the honor of His name. We're but insects small, insignificant, meaningless little creatures on His world that is a display of His glory, grass that is here today and gone tomorrow, pawns in His game. It's easy for us when we think that it's all done for God's glory to be tempted to think and give way to such despairing thoughts as we contemplate God's motive as His glory alone. And I think that's the reason why Jesus adds the next part. Because He knows, He knows our frame, does He not? He knows that we're tempted with such thoughts. And so He adds verse 11 and 12. Look there. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? There's this, you may miss it, but there's a bit of trickery here in the language a number of commentators notice it. There is a similarity between a fish and a serpent. They're both scaly and shiny and kind of longish, right? And then the word in the Greek for egg sounds, the word is oan, sounds a lot like the word for, in the Greek for scorpion, scorpion, oan, scorpion. There's a play on words and shapes. And so there's a hint that a father, and it's true, can easily outsmart a child with what he asks. He can thereby demonstrate that he is superior and more wise and clever than the little child by what he gives. You ask for an oan and I give you a scorpion. He can bring glory to himself at the expense of the child. But of course, of course, no father would do that. Why? Why would a father not do that? Well, because the glory and name of the father are bound up with the son. He is His Son, and the Father loves His Son and gives Him what He asks for. A fish when He asks for a fish. Uh, an egg when He requests an egg. A father does not withhold that which is good from his children. At least not ordinarily or appropriately or fittingly. And remember that we have just been taught in the pattern of prayer to call upon God as Father. Father. The name that will most certainly be the one that He honors. It is that title, that relationship to you that He will not allow to be called shameless. He created you and He gave His Son to redeem you. Why would He trick you now when you're asking for an egg or a fish? Our Lord, He's reasoning with you, you see. And He continues in verse 13. If you then, you then who are, He says, evil, evil, that is, those who would suspect God of selfishness in His pursuit of glory. Who would doubt God's goodness and kindness. Who would think that God is a God who is a trickster, who would pull a fast one on you. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, you who are evil know what a good father should be, how much more will the heavenly Father, notice the, the heightened language, give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask you, heavenly, holy. And I think that that last bit is a little bit of a twist, unexpected. You didn't expect, maybe having read this you expect it, but 
reading through it the first time, you wouldn't expect the Holy Spirit. God, for His honor as Father, will answer prayer and answering, give the Holy Spirit. And then, if you're like me, you're reading the Bible alone in your house and you think, oh no, what does that mean? Should I only read, when I pray, should I only pray for the Holy Spirit? And that, that way I know that I'm going to get what I asked for? Well, no, I don't think so. Although you may be tempted to do so. Rather, I think that He is promising something to us in prayer. He's saying that as we seek Him, as we seek God as an honorable Father who is not one who is characterized as one who has shamelessness, He will hear and answer. And it is that experience of seeking God and having Him answer our prayer that leads us into our participation in the life of the Holy Spirit. We, 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 we receive the gift, and with the gift, we don't just receive the gift. It's better than that. We receive fellowship with God who hears and answers prayer as though we were His Son and He were our Father. We with and in Jesus know communion with God as He says He will be our Father in prayer. We have to hear that again, I think. Let me say it in a different way. In prayer, you and I will know that you are in Him and He is in you. You will know that He is yours and you are His in prayer. You can and you will know it as surely as God seeks His own glory and is not cruel, but kind and generous and loving as a father, a good one. And so pray. And praying, find that He gives you much more than you expect. Indeed, He gives you all that you need. That's the first thing. He makes you a sharer in His life, which brings me to the last point. I've hinted at it already, but let's make it more explicit. Jesus has set before us God and His glory and grace, and now notice who you are when you sidle up to this place, this table in prayer. You are a son. Not just a friend. Not one that's outside knocking on the door, calling out for something for bread, but a son in the presence of his father asking him for food. You see, just by listening to Jesus, just by continuing in his word and not running off at the first syllable, he brings you near. In prayer, you have made something you were not before. Both word and prayer as a means of grace to make you new, to regenerate you, to make your calling and your election sure. You and me finding ourselves members of the household of God. Sons and daughters of a king. Royalty in that sense. No longer orphans. Adopted children of God. It's not bland oatmeal, you see, that our Lord sets before us when He prepares the table that we call prayer. But a full-on feast of fat things and wine on the lees, as the King James says it. He sets that before us. I was recently watching a, a documentary show about this guy who was living in the wilds of frozen Alaska, and he's eating a diet all the time of fresh killed game. You know, he goes out and he hunts in the mountains. He has to climb, go miles at a time to, in the knee-deep snow to kill caribou and bring it back. And he, he was talking about eating this diet. And he says, I don't like to eat that packaged stuff that you get at the grocery store, but this fresh killed game, because as he calls it, it's powerful food. 
It's powerful food, food which makes him strong to live in such a cold, barren, frozen wilderness without much food. He's strong to climb mountains and hike through snow and cut deep holes in frozen lakes. Powerful food. And Jesus sets before us powerful food when He gives us prayer. He gives you His prayer and He lays it out in all of its splendor and all of its promise. And He says, He bids you. It's as though He pulls out the chair and says, Come and pray. Come and pray. Find that you will have all the strength you need to survive in this broken, cold, barren world. And more, to flourish there and flourishing find that you are even prepared for the world to come. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful, O Lord, for such a gift, an indescribable gift that we have been given to come and to pray and to seek your face and to find that you, not begrudgingly, but for your own glory and as a Father who loves us, will listen. As a good Father who never fails, will will give ear and give us all that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we pray that we might always be put in remembrance of this by the work of your Spirit through your Word, and so we might be a people who pray and find in prayer strong food to strengthen us for our witness in a world in a world that is lost and dying and as a preparation for the world to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.